Chapter 6 of Douglas Duane. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Douglas Duane by Edgar Fawcett. Chapter 6 But he was quite unconscious of not being thoroughly welcome. You look tired, he said, after he had taken a seat near the easy chair, into which I had again thrown myself. I am a little tired, was my reply. My dear fellow, you've been overworking again. I'm always overworking, I returned, with a little laugh that could not have been very jocund. No doubt I shall always continue to do so, until— I had paused, and Demotte, with a shake of the head, murmured, "'Until you make that discovery, I suppose. <laughs> what a worshipper of science you are! I was talking about you hardly an hour ago.' "'Talking? About me?' I queried with a start. "'I do not believe in premonitions or presentiments, naturally. We exact thinkers have a way of throwing all such trifles into a single rubbish-bin labelled nevertheless." a thrill that bore in it the shiver of positive fear now swept through me well floyd i hope you had pleasant things to say need i tell you that we did we oui. who was the other why millicent hadley of course your of course is a little confusing upon my word oh it could hardly have been anyone else because we have so few friends in common and then here is where he looked at me as though there might be a chance of my wilfully playing with his credulity you know very well douglas that millicent cordially admires you that cordially admires you must have sent the blood from my cheeks though demotte did not observe that any such effect had been wrought by his perfectly unconscious patronage my fingernails began a little clicking tattoo just here on the carved sides of my chair it cost me self-control to keep from making some sarcastic and even bitter reply but as it was i merely said you have been seeing miss hadley to-day yes and you found nothing better than myself to talk about nonsense now douglas don't force me to tell you there is hardly anything so good what a brute I am! flashed through my thoughts. Here is a man who comes to me with the sweetest feelings of friendship in his heart, and I secretly desire to fly from him one minute and be rude to him the next. Aloud, I said to Demotte almost aimlessly, Miss Hadley is quite well. Yes, very. And her father? Worse, or something very like it. It certainly looks as if he won't last much longer. He grows weaker and sleeps more. Demotte dropped his eyes on the carpet now and spoke in a lingering, musing voice. She was feeling wretchedly blue about him. Poor girl. She needed to be cheered up. If one only could think of a way. And so you thought about me, I broke in. That was certainly flattering. And. Miss Hadley admires me, eh? 
of course she does. But— Oh, there's a but, is there? I asked, and while the words left me, I could feel my heart beat with sudden nervous throbs, and wondered whether my voice did not come near to betraying me by its undue tremors. Demotte laughed. No but, as regards to her admirations, respect, liking, and all that. Certainly not. Perhaps I should not have used the little word at all. The truth is, we somehow got talking of your intellectuality, Douglas, and of the, uh, the coldness which goes with it, necessarily in most cases, as we agreed. Coldness? I repeated, and coldly enough, too. Yes, I don't mean, or rather, Millicent and I didn't mean that you are not human enough. It was about your, your susceptibility, you know. Oh, confound it! Demott suddenly broke off. I'm almost sorry I mentioned the subject. Explanations of this sort are sometimes so deucedly awkward. And did Miss Hadley give it as her opinion that I was cold, although she admitted me to be human? Oh, look here now, you're laughing at me, at us both, cried Demotte. On the contrary, I haven't the least inclination to laugh, I answered, though my voice was warily schooled not to sound too serious as I spoke these words. Oh, well then, said Demotte, still eyeing me doubtfully, it can all be summed up in this. I hazarded the theory that you were not a man who would ever care enough for any woman to marry her, and Millicent didn't by any means deny it. And really, Douglas, you won't deny it either, I'm almost certain. It would appear to be useless, I replied, since you have settled the matter. No, we haven't, exclaimed Demotte, now sure that I was complacent and far from satirical. Indeed, poor Millicent, whose experience, you know, in all such affairs, must have come to her simply from the romances that she has read, gave as an afterthought that you were just the kind of man who might some day fall violently and savagely in love. Demont laughed with extreme heartiness. That horoscope, my dear fellow, struck me as a very funny one to draw for you. And why, if you please? Why? It called up such an absurd picture of you. I saw you in imagination, feeling your own pulse with dignified amusement. I fancied I could see you putting your delicious frenzy, as it were, under a microscope, and tabulating the separate waves of heat produced by it, according to their momentum and velocity. <laughs> ah, now I do perceive that you must think me very cold, I said, and I said it with a great deal of coldness rising at the same time. Demotte hurried toward me. He insisted on taking my hand in his own, and his look flashed a real repentance into mine, while he hastily addressed me. There, you are offended, Douglas. I beg your pardon what I meant an idle joke. Idle, but not malicious. I never am the last. You'll give me credit to that extent, I'm sure. I have my oddities and my bad flaws. No one realizes this more fully than I do myself. But I don't wound people deliberately or mischievously. No, never. 
you may be a sleeping volcano under all that equanimity of yours, dear friend. I hope, if you are, that your fires will some day find the proper vent. And then I'll congratulate you with—well, with three cheers and a tiger. No one more sincerely. Depend on it. I'm prepared to think the world of any woman you should set your heart upon. And she must conform with a rather high standard, too, if she wants me to believe she's worthy of you. There, now, don't maintain that solemn look, or I shall believe you haven't forgiven me. There is nothing at all for me to forgive, Floyd, I said, and, having gained this closer view of his face, I saw that he was tremulously excited. He caught my other hand and held it as he had been holding its mate throughout the delivery of his recent eager sentences. "'Ah, that is the right way to talk,' he cried. "'God knows I don't want to quarrel with you on this day, of all days. I'm so fond of you that the thought of a quarrel between us is always hateful to me. But on this day it's especially so. I wonder now if you can guess why I speak as I'm doing.' Perhaps you see that I'm happy. Perhaps you read it in my face. Well, then, if you do, as your nod tells me that you do, can you guess what has made me happy? I think that I can. As these words fell from me, my heart seemed like a burden of lead in my bosom. You mean that... that Millicent has made me happy? Don't you mean that, Douglas? If I had dreamed he was not utterly unaware of the torture he inflicted, how I should have flung the clasp of his warm hands away from my own. But he was unaware of it, absolutely ignorant and innocent of doing anything except giving me an agreeable little surprised shock. So I steeled myself into saying, with only an air of amicable interest, Yes, I mean that. And I'm right, I suppose. Of course you are. It came about this afternoon. She was speaking of her father's illness, and her voice broke a little. I never have been quite sure that she loved me until then. All your science, Douglas, could never just explain the peculiar intuition of that moment. Her eyes swam in tears, and a light stole out of them that was like some direct and exquisite tidings to me. I don't think I even asked her if she did love me. I took it rapturously for granted. And now we're engaged. I want our marriage to be soon. I greatly hope that it will be soon. Nor, as I find with delight, is Millicent averse to it being so. But you have not wished me joy, Douglas. I know that you do wish me joy. Still, I'm capricious. Tyrannical, if you please. I want you to be the first who shall tell me that I've chosen wisely. Somehow I managed to acquit myself with a requisite amount of calm hypocrisy before Demotte left me that day. After he had gone, I recalled passing into a room which adjoined my laboratory proper, and which I had fitted up as a sort of scientific library and study, with not a few well-filled bookshelves and the latest reviews, American and foreign, that bore relation to the subjects I so preferred. The weather was early May, mild, yet with a delicious pulse of fresh, resistant breeze. I opened a window 
and sank into a seat beside it, leaning my breast against its ledge, while I looked down upon the multiform and murmurous city from my rather dizzying attic height. A drowsy purplish haze. That light, fair prophecy of our awakening spring, gleamed at the verge of the horizon. The sky itself already just ethereally touched with the evening, and no more. Curved in delicate blue above me, so much purer by the contrast with the big, impure city it overlooked. A great sigh passed my lips. Here I sat, with what millions of envious fellow creatures would doubtless be willing to admit was all the world before me, with an abundant wealth, with education, with a frame whose vigour promised longevity, and yet with an immitigable wretchedness at my heart. Demotte's freedom from jealousy was no longer unaccounted for. He had cared nothing at all about my being thrown with Millicent. I had been thoroughly safe, so to speak. I would never marry, in all likelihood. My science was absorption, concentration, devotion, for me. Ah, how blind I had been! not to have detected in him this trend and bias of complete misjudgment. I clenched my hands together as I thought of how I might have prevented by very direct means any similar fallacy in her. Who could say that this idea of my frigid and loveless intellectuality might not have been changed into something widely opposite, if only I had known a little earlier of its existence in Millicent's mind? Would that I had known it. And now a vast blank swept before me, the other distant blank of death blending with it, as mist of ocean with mist of sky. Of all the living women, none could be to me what Millicent Hadley might have been. I had never loved before. I would never love again. Or rather, I would never again cease to love. The expression of a great passion in bare, bold, literal prose is such a temptation of the commonplace. I cannot write the depth of my disappointment without somehow seeming to invite the shallowness of metaphors, which may do no more than hint its ardour and its anguish alike. So many human bipeds have suffered, just as I suffered then, if all the dead and buried hopes, once vital with longing as mine had been, could have their tombs visibly and tangibly shown, what new acres of graveyard this ill-ordered and woe-laden planet would be found to contain? Demotte had perhaps rightly stated of me that I was a man to put my delicious frenzy under a microscope. But alas, when it thus gave me ecstasy instead of sorrow, I did not know of any microscope under which to put it. My inductive reasoning had stood bewildered before it. It was a part of me. It had slipped into my being. It flung a quiet and perpetual scoff against all my training in axiom, formula, analysis, logic, experiment. It meant a boundary line, at which the dissective postures that I sought became limp and aidless gropings. 
I had paused before its thwarting repulsion, as fact, while it was still a novel and unforeseen intoxication as sentiment. But now, when it had taken the dark outline of despair, I continued to confront it as the baffled man of science, and not as the usual complacent martyr. I wanted to take my pain in my hand and scrutinize it, subject it to laws, treat it as a surgeon would treat the dreadful, though fascinating blight of a cancer, whose gnaw and bane taunted him with their yet ungrasped arguments of decay. And all such mode of dealing was so drearily impossible. Science, I had long ago told myself, would one day reach the pitch and kernel of its cause. But science, as yet, with her undoubted wonders of accomplishment, had done so little. I think there was never yet a man as strangely a sufferer from what we call heartbreak as I, Douglas Duane, at this particular moment my solitude and distress. Every old tradition of the being who bows himself beneath the blow of unrequited love was, in my case, rendered unprecedentedly null. I did not weep or mourn. I strained at my bonds and longed to learn from what nameless element they had been forged. Always incredulous and rebellious, where the tenets of an optimistic belief were concerned, I was now a nonconformist of the fiercest type. I felt myself siding with John Stuart Mill in his declaration that the powers of the air are perhaps equally divided, into angels and demons. The wide, dreamy hum of the encompassing city grew to my ears like a great roar of threat as I leaned a little further across the ledge of the window. If we are really the sport and jest of deity, I mused, how easy is it to end the sport and let the jest be laughed out? How numberless are the doors of escape for those who would really fly from life's rigors? And death is annihilation of consciousness though it may not be a force. I looked at the pavements, many scores of feet beneath me. If I were to leap down upon them, I would die as I touched them. Why not do it, without another instant of premeditation? Suppose that for a few fleet seconds the pain were terrific. What would be the direst throes it could inflict besides such visitations of forlorn disheartenment as the coming years would multiply and prolong. "'You believe in no future for the soul,' said a voice, which seemed to come from that very source I had so resolutely denied. "'Or, if you accede to the soul's vital entity at all, you may become convinced that it is impersonal, unindividual, as the twilight breeze that now blows upon your face. Possess yourself of the one supreme prize attainable to all on whom an inevitable dower of unhappiness has descended. Lay to your wounds this one sure and eternal balm. Cheat disaster by drinking of the leth to which all must sooner or later bend their lips. I rose from my chair, for one brief flash of time, I tingled with the suicide's true headlong madness. 
I pushed the chair close to the wainscot below the window, and then sprang upon it, a second afterward setting one foot upon the ledge against which I had just been leaning. I meant, firmly and infallibly meant, to dash myself into the street below. And then, as I cast my gaze downward once more, a sensation which I shall never forget, though I should live a thousand years, darted through every nerve. It was not any qualm of cowardice, nor was it at all kin to intimidation, completely the opposite of either. It seized me with untold power. I almost reeled from the chair, lifting both hands to my whirling head. I seemed to see, with a piercing and acute prescience into my own unlived days, a certainty of something which I might achieve. Something at once awful and unprecedented glared before my inner vision in lines of blinding light. I must have staggered forward and then fallen, for afterward, when an abrupt blurring daze had rushed over me and subsided, I found myself prone on the soft rug of the floor, and was aware that one temple had been slightly bruised. Of what weird stuff had my strange ecstasy, hallucination, besieging fantasy been wrought? What extraordinary and portentous revelation had burst upon me? I could not respond to the questions with which my clearing brain now taxed its own depths. At the same time, a misty perception of the truth still remained, faint as though it were a last pulse born of some mighty vibration. Again, the rationalist within me made all this glamour of mysticism appear folly that deserved scoff alone. And always, in such sceptical moods, I explained on solely physiological grounds the whole anomalous occurrence. But my suicidal impulse had vanished from that hour. I had now no disinclination whatever to live on and stoically face the future. End of chapter 6 Recording by David Botcher